1: Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and this week we're doing a special segment on science in China. We speak to The Economist science editor, Jeff Carr, about where the country stands in the
2: sciences. There is a very clear desire by the Chinese state to become a scientific power. There's plenty of money to do that. They just have to work out how to go about doing it.
1: We talked to the former NASA astronaut Leroy Chow about China's recent
3: moon landing. This is the first time that China has done something in space exploration that no other entity, no other country has done. And The Economist deputy
1: editor, Ed Carr, joins us to consider the effect science may have on China.
4: What does it do to an authoritarian country when you create an elite of critical thinking, inquiring, empirical, independent-minded people?
1: But first, where is China's place in the scientific community, and where is it headed? The country has been on a juggernaut of economic development for decades, and alongside wealth and power comes scientific prowess. China aims to be a leader in many fields, but how well is it doing? In what areas is it excelling, and where is it lagging? And how might China's ambition change science? Jeff Carr is the economist science editor. He authored a big report in the latest issue and joins me now in the studio. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ken. So what is the state of the sciences in China?
2: In a state of both flux and growth, I would say. There is a very clear desire by the Chinese state to become a scientific power. Uh, there's a plenty of money to do that. They just have to work out how to go about doing it, which they are doing in a reasonably uh, effective way. The university system, obviously in a country the size of China, there are thousands of universities, I think over 2,000 at the last count, I can't remember exactly. But the government has more or less wished into existence what might be seen as an Ivy League, which they call the C9, uh, of universities which receive preferential treatment and to which the best researchers are encouraged to go. And is it working? Are they doing anything particularly special? It seems to be working, yes. The uh, publication rate is going up. People have been sniffy about the number of publications coming out of China. and It is true that a lot of them are paper mill publications. Either uh, they're doing something which is not particularly novel or uh, quite often they're fraudulent. And fraudulent corruption is quite a problem in Chinese science. But that is increasingly being dealt with. So this is a work in progress um, and it's clear that the quality of the research papers as well as the quantity is increasing.
1: What about particular scientific domains where China is really accelerating versus areas of science where they're actually still behind other countries?
2: Well, they are certainly involved in uh, modern biology, so biomedicine and bioagriculture, if you like. Um, there's a lot of work going on in the new gene editing technique of CRISPR-Cas9. Some of that's directed to medical ends, and some of it's directed to agricultural ends. What is the area where China needs to catch up? They're not so much interested in scientific theory. It's it's still very pragmatic. So I didn't come across many evolutionary biologists there. I mean, there may be uh, there may be some, and I did talk to some paleontologists. But um, the um, how and why things become the way they are was not that much investigated. They are interested in fundamental physics, though. There are projects looking for um, dark matter, which is uh, most abundant sort of matter in the universe, even though we don't know what it is. It's about six times as abundant as atoms are. There are projects looking into neutrinos, which are small and uh, peculiar subatomic particles. And the Chinese have a very have a, a strong plan and a fairly good claim to be the location of the next big particle accelerator, the one that will replace the Large Hadron Collider in Europe when that's run out of our time.
1: So if China can catch up to the West and to America, it seems like it's going to create a more unified world for science.
2: Uh, yes, one would hope so. As long as it's published science, anyone can use it. And obviously, China has its secrets, as any country does. But people who are working in academia or the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which is a quasi-academic body, that they publish, they publish it in international journals, and their results are available for everybody else. And also, there's a, there's. A, Fair amount of crossover these days because one of the carrots for the Thousand Talents program is that you're not required to give up academic positions abroad. So, you know, someone who has a laboratory in California can keep their their Californian uh, academic position and essentially commute across the Pacific Ocean.
1: Let me ask an unfair question. Perhaps maybe the best litmus test for the quality of a country's science is to what degree some of the smartest minds of the world are willing to learn the language and then travel to that country and study there. And we've seen that in America and in Europe for centuries now. At what point will people from Africa, Latin America, Europe or America willingly learn Chinese so that they can go to China and study science in China?
2: The answer will partly depend not on the quality of Chinese science, but on the quality of Chinese society. The big transfer of, uh, big historically important transfer of scientists from place A to place B was from European general and Germany in particular, to the United States uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Now, the United States is a country built by immigration, broadly speaking, historically at least, welcoming of immigrants uh, and a place where someone with a bit of ambition will find it comfortable to go and set up shop, and many did. China is not a country that welcomes immigrants. It's not hostile to migrants. You can go and live there if you want to. But, you know, it's still possibly a dictator, but certainly an authoritarian uh, oligarchy. And people don't want to live in such a place. And to the extent that most scientists are Westerners, uh, it's quite a culture shock to go and live in a place like that. So I think if you're going to go and live in a foreign country, it's not just about the job.
1: Jeff, that's great. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Next up, already this year, China has made massive leaps in one endeavor, space. It began the year by doing something no nation has done before. It landed a spacecraft on the far side of the moon. To discuss the success of China's space program, I'm joined on the phone by the former NASA astronaut Leroy Chow. Dr. Chow is an American born in Taiwan to Chinese parents. He has shot into space four times and spent 229 days in orbit. He also was the first American allowed to visit the Astronaut Center of China in Beijing. Dr. Chow, welcome to Babbage. Hello. Good to be with you. So my first question to you is, how impressive is the achievement?
3: Well, the impressive thing about China landing this uh, spacecraft and rover on the far side of the moon is that this is the first time that China has done something in space exploration that no other entity, no other country has done. And so uh, it's an exciting first for China. In addition to making that successful landing, they successfully put into a halo orbit around the moon a uh, communications relay satellite Which enabled them to do this mission to both command and to communicate with the spacecraft and the rover. And it all seems to be going very well. Now, the U.S., of course, we maintain a lot of firsts. Even now, uh, we have just very recently sent the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft about 100 million miles to rendezvous and orbit around the asteroid Bennu, which is only about 500 meters in diameter. And so we we continue to do a lot of firsts ourselves, but China has kind of fired a warning shot across our bow that, hey, look, we can do firsts too, and uh, we're doing it very well.
1: Now, you have a unique lens on this because you're an American, but both your parents were Chinese.
3: Yes, that's right. My parents were both originally uh, born in China. I was born in Taiwan. My parents both uh, found their way to, to Taiwan when they were very young. So by the time uh, I was born, they had already uh, moved here to the U.S. So, yeah, I do kind of I grew up with, you know, both cultures, if you will, I had the Chinese culture at home and then very much grew up in mainstream America. Uh, of course, I'm an American first and foremost and served proudly in the United States space program as a NASA astronaut. Uh, But uh, it's very very much interest that I do uh, have this heritage connection with uh, China and I watch development of their space program and uh, their society.
1: Now, you say that this is a shot across the bow to the United States. In what way? Where do you think Chinese space exploration wants to go?
3: Well, China is very deliberate, uh, just even just culturally and as a nation, they are much Farther looking than we are in the West, and so rather than looking to the next presidential cycle or a few years down the road, they're looking decades ahead, and so they've got a very deliberate plan to become the leaders in spaceflight, including human spaceflight. And you see that in the way that they've started since they they launched Yang Li Wei in 2003, their first national astronaut. Uh, they haven't launched very often, just every every couple of years. Uh, But they've been very deliberate with each mission doing more and more than the previous one, developing and demonstrating more capability. They've launched and operated two space labs, uh, kind of mini space stations, flying missions as long as about a month with crews of three. They've launched their first women astronauts. And they're going to begin building their own space station, which they intend to include international partners in, uh, beginning in 2020. So um, they've announced that they intend to land astronauts on the moon sometime on the 2030s. Uh, that was more of kind of a, an announcement rather than a detailed, uh, um, you know, program or plan. But uh, but I believe they're going to they're serious about doing it. So their intention is to eventually uh, become the leaders in not only human spaceflight. I think, of course. China probably wants to be the the lead nation in the world. So what does this accomplishment
1: say about the broader issue of science in China?
3: Well, science is very important in China for, you know, both, uh, you know, from an emphasis on a cultural level, as well as to, you know, the leaders of the country that see the value of scientific leadership and engineering leadership. And so uh, very much valued, of course, education, especially technical and scientific education in China and in most of Asia. Uh, but, you uh, Uh, You see that they're very serious about cracking down on any kind of controversy over there, any kind of uh, scandals. They they don't want their national scientific integrity to be questioned by the rest of the international community. Interesting little little point is that you know most, I believe, somewhere around um, over 90 percent of of uh, U.S. politicians are lawyers, you know, by training, and in, in China, over 90 percent of their politicians are engineers. And so, interesting difference in approach, and uh, probably some emphasis as well.
1: That's so interesting, Dr. Chow, Thank you very much.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Finally, so far we've considered China's effect on the sciences, where it is and where it's headed. But what are the more strategic implications for the country, both domestically and internationally? To discuss this, I'm joined by Ed Carr, the Economist's deputy editor, who has also written about this for the latest issue. Hello, Ed. Ken, hi. Many people are asking the question of how China might change science. You've asked the question how science might change China. How might it?
4: Well, I think it goes to the heart of modern science. The first thing to note is just the sheer effort that China is putting in to develop its science base. It's realized that if it's going to be a first-class economic and military power, it needs to have a first-class cadre of researchers who have expertise, who are at the cutting edge of their fields. And it's truly remarkable just how intense um, the effort to increase Chinese science is. So the first way in which science changes China is by solving a lot of problems in China and by developing the expertise of China. But I think there's a more subtle and interesting reverse effect, which is, What does it do to an authoritarian country when you create an elite of critical thinking, inquiring, empirical, independent-minded people? What does it do in a country where the leaders, in order to sustain themselves in power, need to control
1: thinking and discourse? Okay. So let me pose a question about what I'll call the illusion of progress. Uh, Take, for example, the internet when it was created in the 90s. It was decentralized in terms of its architecture, and there was a view that it was going to bring down authoritarian governments and centralized power because it was inherently a democratizing technology. It was a decentralized technology. But of course, what we saw was just the opposite, that authoritarian power used the internet to actually strengthen its controls. So likewise, now I want to pose the question if we're living in a liberal fantasy in which we believe that the ethos of the open-minded scientist will go into a society and create an open society by dint of applying its ethos into that context. When in fact, if the context is a authoritarian government, they'll simply use science for its aims and it won't have this democratizing force. If anything, it could actually be misused.
4: Well, there's certainly that danger. And, of course, one of the things that Chinese science is doing, through particularly AI, is building exactly those means of social control that help um, authoritarians govern and control the population in real time. Um, However, I think there's a difference, which is even if most Chinese scientists comply with the authorities because they think that's in their interest and they're perfectly happy just to have intellectual freedom in their academic discipline. That's, that's fine. You don't need very many scientists who think differently to make a real difference. And remember that in an, in an authoritarian system where the, the official version of reality is suffocating and arouses cynicism... Scientists whose whose whole approach is sort of telling the truth about the world have a particular moral authority, and the obvious example is Sakharov in Russia, who was able to become you know one of the main dissidents because he had this moral authority. And it's interesting too that Sakharov is not the only example. In in one of the leaders of the Tiananmen Square uprising uh, was Fang Li who was a, a an astrophysicist. So I don't think there's any guarantee. It's a very, it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. But you don't need many scientific dissidents to make a difference inside a system like China. And I think that's the fundamental difference between the internet, which became a means of control, and this sense that you're creating a, an elite class of scientists. who have a particular framework and a particular way of approaching the world.
1: Yeah, that's great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. To learn more about China and the sciences, pick up the latest issue of The Economist. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist. You've been up in space four times. You spend almost 230 days in space. I've not even spent an hour in outer space. (laughs) What did I do wrong? Where did it all go south? (laughs)